second grade at the Prima Donna Project. My name is Nat Grant. I'm the composer and songwriter for Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge that this podcast is recorded and produced on stolen land, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. For more information about the podcast, you can visit primadonnapodcast.com. The second portrait in this series is of performer, teacher, and artistic director of Mahama Theatre, Bruce Jones. Bruce has been at Mahama since 1973, and she's been artistic director since 1976. She's passionate about supporting independent artists and striving for gender and social equality in Cuba and the US. So, I mean, La Mama is where, how I know of you, and you've yes. been there for quite, quite a long time. Yes, I've been working there since 1973. Hmm. And what would, um, how did you start off there? Did you start off as an artistic director? No, I started off, let me think, I started off as a performer. Um, but my, uh, my association with La Mama really started because I became friends with Betty Burstall because we were both teachers. Um, and, and what were you teaching, acting? No, we were both English teachers. Okay. And we were both, we were, I met her in about 1971 at a conference. We were both grappling with, with the issues around teaching migrants, particularly talking about um, working, teaching Islamic girls. Um, and we had a sort of a couple of disagreements about this and then met for coffee to sort out it, the issues. Uh, and then... I went off to England um, and I came back a year later and I thought I'd really love to teach with Betty um, because I'd found her quite inspiring and so I applied for a job at Brunswick, what was then Brunswick Girls High in Albert Street, Brunswick. It's just a block of flats now, of course. Um, And uh, I, I got the job and so I then began teaching with Betty um, meanwhile, my husband, um, well, my, he wasn't my husband then, but Lloyd uh, had written a play in on, on the on the way of when we were on the, a ferry going to Sweden, and we approached Betty about doing it, um, and uh, and she said we could, um, and but the first thing that we did was a, a performance artwork in the garden at La Mama, and I just loved it. And I'd been going to see plays there. This was in 73. And so I said to Betty, "Um, do you need any help in running La Mama with front of house or anything? And she said, yes, yes, it would be great if I I had someone to free me from doing front of house on Sunday nights. And so... she was doing everything. Because she was doing everything. Yeah, she was doing everything. And so this was in... La Mama had been going for five years at this point. Um, and so I started um, relieving her f- doing front of house on Sunday nights, which meant I saw all the shows, started performing there regularly. And then when, when she went to live in Greece, um, a woman called Anne Eckersley, the late Anne Eckersley, was, um, was running La Mama for her. Uh, and Betty suddenly decided that she didn't want to to have that burden of La Mama any longer. She wanted to live in Greece in, in, on Eos, the island of Eos, sort of unencumbered. 
And so she offered um, La Mama to Anne, who initially said yes, then decided she really wanted to go to uni and be an anthropologist. And so Anne rang me and said, have you got any ideas of anyone who would take La Mama on? And I had just come home from the hospital with a two, two-week-old baby. Um, and I talked to my mum and I talked to my partner, my husband, who's then my husband, Lloyd, and I thought I couldn't bear La Mama just to sort of founder. But also, I have to say, it was a cherished dream of mine to one day run, run La Mama. I didn't think I would be running La Mama with a two-week-old wow. baby. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I bit the bullet <laughs> and said I'd take it on. Um, and then shortly after that, Anne changed her mind and we ran it together for a number of years. Um, yeah, and um, we supported each other through having babies. Uh, um, we sort of took it in terms to do that. Um, and then I think it was in about 1979 and decided to go and live, become a farmer and go and live up in um, northern New South Wales. I hunted around for someone to um, to manage it with me, um, but I really, in the end, I couldn't find anyone. It's interesting. I couldn't find anyone who was interested in doing that. I did ask a couple of people, um, and then I thought, well, I've just got to do it myself. So I've sort of been, I've been the artistic director ever since. So I became the artistic director in at the end of 1976, and here I am in 2018, still doing the job. Amazing. (laughs) It's a very, very lovely and special job. It's so inspiring. I mean, my whole, you know, career, La Mama's been there as this established, wonderful, safe, sort Mm. of feminist space, and to, it just, um, you know, to hear that Betty kind of started it on her own and ran it on her own and... Yes. It's just inspiring. I think it's just encouraging and to, you know, you just, it, you got to start something. It and is. And keep and, doing it. And, and that and really inspired me. I have to say that Betty was my mentor. Yeah. Um, she was my point of inspiration. She, you know, she went to America with Tim, went to La Mama New York and other spaces around, um, around the, uh, the off-off Broadway scene, which was very lively in the 60s. Um, met Ellen Stewart, who ran La Mama New York, and came back. She talked to various people about setting up a space. Um, And I've read uh, descriptions of those meetings, but everyone, it it just seemed that to her, people kept putting up problems and, and, and and feeling that the challenges were too great. So in the end, she just decided she'd just do it on herself. So she rented La Mama, um, and I always get the rent wrong. It was definitely dollars. Dollars had just come in, and I think, I think it was fourteen dollars a week. Um, and she paid that rent through teaching, yeah. through, through her teacher's wage, and she raised money in various ways. You know, Arthur Boyd did a painting, and um, 
sold it and gave her the proceeds to help keep La Mama together. Yep. Um, and she sort of struggled along until about 1970 when um, Malcolm Robertson and Carillo Gantner assisted her in the process of actually getting a grant. But Betty always had a very... Um, she was always very sceptical about grants. Why? She always felt really that, that artists should support themselves. She sort of didn't... I mean, we argued about it constantly because I absolutely believe in government funding. <laughs> totally. Um, because it gives me the kind of freedom um, to do what, what, whatever I want to do. And, and, it, and that has gone on. Um, you know, I have felt very little, uh, ever felt any political interference. Sometimes something impinges a little bit. You suddenly someone wants you to put up a, uh, a notice warning that people are nude, whereas I think that people should come to La Mama expecting bad <laughs> language, drug use, nudity, yes. all of that, yeah. because, it's, you know, because it's what it is. Yeah. Um, but, but Betty just felt that um, really the arts should survive on their own. Um, she just was from that kind of an old school... The things Betty and I used to argue about, Betty also was quite anti-feminist at times. Um, and that again came from her very traditional... Uh, um, a very, very traditional values, um, which she, she sort of, in a way, had a set of rules in, in her head that she broke all the time, I always used to feel. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so she was a very fascinating woman, but, but she was just such a strong woman and so, and, and so clear-sighted. Um, so she was, a, she, she was a bundle of contradictions, but a total inspiration to me. And was she a performer? No, not at all. Yeah. No, Betty, well, of course she was. Mm. Um, I remember having a discussion with uh, with a friend of mine called Lindy Davies, and Lindy said that whenever she wanted to be really, um, and, and Lindy is an actress, she's an award-winning actress, and she said whenever she wanted to be really fierce, she would channel Betty Burstall and raise herself up and give people a very, very distinct order. And I thought that's a wonderful solution because I often find find that, that it, it very hard to be as assertive as I feel I should be and so I then decided, yes, that I'll channel <laughs> Betty because Betty, in a way, um, Betty was a public persona so often. I taught with her at school and she was such a leader, you know, she would get everyone round the lunch table and hop say something utterly provocative and get a discussion going, you know, something, say, for instance, totally anti-union and, and all get all the unionists attacking her and, you know, and everyone yelling and <laughs> that was Betty. But on, but she would not, never even dream of being a performer on the stage. She was um, a potter and a painter, beautiful painter. Um, a pa she used to be a potter when they lived at Eltham, but in, in, the la in her last period of life, she was largely a landscape painter, landscape artist. A 
And look, I was a passionate, I, both Betty and I were passionately dedicated teachers. We took our teaching very seriously. Um, and, and that was where Betty, Betty and I had a, a sort of a nice symbiotic relationship before she went to Greece because I was the team leader, the, I was her team leader at, at Brunswick Girls. And, then, and she was my team leader at La Mama. <laughs> um, yes, and both of us uh, were very, took our teaching very seriously. I think teaching is a wonderful profession. Um, and I, I was a teacher for 20 years. And certainly I never taught as a way of subsidising anything else. I was a passionate teacher in the... Um, late 70s um, along with uh, two of my friends we started a small community school within our school we were given a, a building and, and it was a little it was a f 7 to 12 um, but only 50 kids very very particular school we chose 50 because that we could fit 50 kids in a bus and they were all kids who didn't like school yeah. um, and it was called the mini school the Brunswick East, then at Brunswick East Mini School. Um, yes, so I mean, I was a very passionate teacher. So is that a less traditional sort of? Because not all not all kids fit into that standard model. Of no, not all kids fit into the standard model at all. And so, and we were very aware of that teaching in that school. And we had a wonderful female principal, June English, who was another of my mentors. Who, when um, a number of us decided we wanted to experiment in running an entirely different kind of school well she gave us the art block the art room block which was great because it meant it had sinks and all those sorts of things so we could you know we could and it was away from everyone we could just really do as we liked um it was very exciting um and but also i was also a, a migrant english teacher and Betty was, an, you know, a, a teacher of migrants, and um, so yeah, we were we were very idealistic teachers. The thing that happened to me was that I had I had given up um, I'd given up any real association with theatre um, in my life before La Mama. Um, and La Mama kind of lured me back. I mean, I can talk to you a little bit about my previous life yeah. because there's n no hint of me running La Mama. It's a bit like Betty was, a, you know, a goat herder and a potter and ended up founding La Mama. Um, and I was a very dedicated teacher and I had been a volunteer teaching in Indonesia. Um, and theatre was miles away from from my life. Yeah. Um, but then lured me back in. Um, and then performance, which I'd done a lot of at uni, lured me back in. And you know, the interesting thing is for me, I have done more performance in my 60s than ever at any other point in my life. Really you know, I've cool. been on tour continually through my 60s, as well as running La Mama, which has been very, very exciting balance for me. Um, performing in Corrindirk, the Aboriginal play, touring that through regional Victoria, working with the project I'm involved with now, Uncle Vanya, which is about to be part of the Adelaide Festival.
I'm very passionate about and adoring of performing. So that's become a much larger part of my life. Nothing prepared me really for La Mama, and and the, that's the interesting thing that Betty, neither Betty nor I, ever had any training in anything to do with theatre. I was an army child. I went to eight schools all over the world, <laughs> three or four universities. So I had a very you know, and then I went to teach in um, in Wagga. And when I graduated and had done my dip ed, I married very young and went with my husband, Chris, um, to um, become a volunteer in Indonesia. And we worked in Indonesia in 68, 69, um, which was, I found deeply challenging. We lived in a village, um, very, very simply. Just had a little Vespa motorbike. Um, and when we came back, we came back to Melbourne. Um, and that's when I went to teach at uni University High School. And that's when I started to re-involve myself a little bit in theatre, partly through the relationship I had with my now husband, Lloyd. Um, and we're involving ourselves in these massive theatrical projects that, that uni high used to take on. Um, so the school production didn't have like the, the 10 top students. It actually tended to have 150, 200 in the cast doing amazing work with a, a, a guy called Brian Hogan. Um, and the, that was what that sort of, you know, I became a little bit interested in theatre. Then went to London in 1972 and got far more interested in theatre again. Um, but by that stage also I'd met Betty and was aware of the existence of La Mama and theatre was sort of beckoning me. But it was quite a, it was a big decision for me to, to decide to give up teaching and concentrate on La Mama. For 10 years I basically supported my running of La Mama by teaching, which was very demanding. I had two small children. Um, I taught three days a week and I ran La Mama. And initially did it with virtually, you know, with, with Anne Eckersley, the two of us ran it together. And then after that alone, but, but always maybe having one or two people helping me out a little. But base, but I, <laughs> La Mama grew and grew and grew, and then of course in nineteen uh, in nineteen ninety eight we were invited to take over the running of the Courthouse Theatre. Um, Who ran that before? Melbourne Writers Theatre ran it before, and they ran into some financial difficulties, and the state government asked us to take it over. Um, which I said only if Melbourne Writers Theatre agreed for us to take it over. Um, and they did because they had completely run out of money um, and they still meet it at La Mama every month, Melbourne Writers Theatre. But um, it was decommissioned, when was it, de let me think, because I've actually, I actually appeared in that court. The last time I was in court was in 
Villamama Courthouse. Oh, wow. Um, because of a car accident in which I was the victim, the plaintiff. Uh, and that was 1977. I think the courthouse was decommissioned about 1985, then run by Melbourne Writers Theatre, and we took it over in 98. But I, I was both artistic director and administrator um, uh, until 2009. So essentially, essentially, once we bought La Mama, um, I I decided I needed someone to take over the... I needed a general manager. (laughs) And that's Caitlin, yes. It was Pippa Bainbridge, but now it's Caitlin Dallard. Do you know Pippa? I know Pippa too, yes. Yes, it was Pippa Bainbridge for the first five years and then then Caitlin since then. Um, and that's been wonderful, and that's been very liberating. That's kind of that has really allowed me to concentrate on being a performer um, with with ease. I, I I did a fair bit of performance in the nineties, from about nineteen eighty nine. I I worked with Ariette Taylor in the late eighties, um, and did a fair bit of performing in the nineties, but then really. In 97, having had a difficult experience with performance and a difficult experience trying to balance all things, I decided just just only to do a little bit of work with my husband, but no other work. Um, and then I got lured back in 10 years later by a woman called Mag- Margaret Cameron, who was such an inspirational performer, and asked me to do a work called Care Instructions and um, with wonderful performers Caroline Lee, Jane Bailey, Cynthia Troop and we did, I, I was lured back into doing that and it ended up going to the Malt House and then it ended up travelling to a festival in Denmark and since then I've worked with The Rabble and with um, Aphids then I was I was involved with this on this project, the Corandirk Aboriginal project, for a, which is still going. It's not actively going at the moment. It's in it's sort of in hibernation. I'm not quite sure what will happen with it. It's about um, it's it's a piece set um, around a hearing at Corandirk, which is part in just um, a, a, a little place just off Healesville, where there was a very large. Aboriginal mission. This is a verbatim project based around on the minutes of evidence of a hearing when the Aboriginal community took the administration of the mission to court for malpractice and won. It's it's quite an extraordinary case Um, and was led by a man called William Burrock. Um, There's a, you know, that's his face on that black and white building in the middle of the city. Um, a great leader. And I played, in this I played Anne Bonn, who was a very, uh, an inspirational white fella. <laughs> Especially seeing that this was all set in 1881. Yeah, right. So um, an ally. Hmm? An ally. Yes, yeah. yes. And... Uh, but I had actually been an instigator of that project. I'd assisted... Giordano Nani, the guy who had got all the minutes of evidence together and wanted to do in actually bringing that to fruition mm. through an association with the obituary um, and and urban um, urban 
urban theatre projects in Sydney who are working with verbatim somehow, you know, just bringing a whole series of things together and we brought that to fruition and that, um, I think we start first performed that in about 2009 in the Sydney Opera House, we took it to the Sydney Opera House in 2012 and I th- we toured in we toured it regionally in about 2015. And then my ra- latest project that I'm working on is with Bagriana Popov, who is a wonderful director, and we're doing this Uncle Vanya. We do it in old houses, because that's Uncle Vanya was set in a sort of, you know, big Russian old house. It's all, in, it's all about decay and, you know, impending disasters. Um, and we've played that in, you know, that's now been perf- being performed for about five or six years. We started at Lyndall Jones's Evoca Project House, which has housed many musical projects as well as others. We, we've done it in Evoca, Eganstown, Healesville, um, uh, Vandenon, we're, and hopefully we're about to do it in... Handorf in Adelaide as part of the Adelaide Festival. So it's a it's a wonderful project. It, we do it over thirty six hours. Um, in, it's in real so in real time, and the audience have to be in residence, and we we can perform it for forty people because it ha- we have to be able to fit the audience in tiny spaces. So we do act usually we do act one and act four for the 40 and then act three two and act three to 20 and 20 we do them twice and it's um doing it in arthur boyd's house last year was absolutely marvelous it was just was it last year that was this year my goodness doing it in arthur boyd's house this year (laughs) and maybe we're going to do it in hans heisen's house next year (laughs) all these projects sound like they've had such great Runs, I know it's wonderful to be a part of yeah. a project that lasts for, you know, five, eight, nine years. It's to, to Is that have quite a, unusual. It's very unusual, yeah. um, and it is very unusual. And and I guess part of part of that has been the fact um, that as a there've been the Mama projects. And, and I guess in a way through the support of La Mama, that has, that's been one of the things that has allowed them to and, and helped maintain their longevity. Yeah. Um, because La Mama is on about, La Mama's on about longevity. It's no flash in the pan. No. <laughs> um, and so, and I'm, I'm on a personally... Um, a very dogged person. I was born in the year of the dog. You know, I taught in the same school for 20 years. That's quite unusual. But I've been CEO of La Mama for f- about 45 years. That's very unusual. I'm the worst paid CEO in the whole of the country, by the way, <laughs> being in the arts, of course. But, yeah, I- I'm, all- I'm sort of on about um, sustaining wonderful things, if I and, and what I, things I believe in. And so I guess that's, that's um, assisted in the fact that, that these projects uh, 
I've been attracted to them because they're wonderful projects and then I've been attracted to keeping, helping keeping them going. And in that with both Corin Dirk and Uncle Vanya, wonderfully assisted by Caitlin, who's also, who's also been project manager of those projects. Mm. Oh, incredible. And to have, I can't imagine having that much time to, for a work to evolve. It's, to, it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and in both cases, with, with incredible cast continuity. With Corin Dirk, um, the two, the two white, white fellas in that, um, playing the, um, the, the, uh, the commissioners, Peter Finlay and I, were consistent throughout. And then there was probably a pool of about 15 people playing everyone else, mm-hmm. um, uh, depending on availability. Yeah. But uh, so that, that was kind of marvellous because, you know, people like Glenn Shea would perform in it and then go off and do other things and then be back in it again. Uh, Uncle Jack Charles would be playing Barack and then he'd be over in Canada and couldn't and so Kelton Pell had come in and play Barack and then Uncle Jack had come back and Kelton Pell had play someone else and, and you know, Greg Fryer would play this person. So there was this wonderful sense of a little company. Yeah. Um, and then with, with um, Uncle Vanya, it's basically been the same act, the same performers, or almost, with I think one exception, continuously mm-hmm. for, um, for five or six years. When I work with Lloyd, my husband, I work in a, we're a little group, um, we're a little group that fluctuates between 20 and 30 um, oh, performers. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> and Lloyd's the, obviously the eldest member, he's 82, but, but and, and there's sort of, you know, obvious young people always coming in and, and others, and other older people floating off. Um, but Lloyd and I have been consistently a part of that. What's the group called? Uh, well, it's not. It's just really oh. the Lloyd Jones mob. You know, yeah, cool. we've yeah. we've always he some he calls it Othan Theatre sometimes, which is obliged to have a name theatre <laughs> <laughs> because we don't have a name. Um, but in that, everyone in his work, he starts with a premise or a concept, and we all build our own roles into that in various ways. So I have written my own work, in, and, but it's performance art. Um, you know, I have pieces. I'm a, I, have a, I have my fortune teller piece where I tell people's fortunes with credit cards. <laughs> Their credit cards? With, with a well, no, I've collect, I have collected oh. <laughs> a wickedly huge thing of credit cards, which okay. I keep well hidden, <laughs> bring out for my performance. Um, and, you know, my laundromat lady. Um, th- there is various pieces that, we, we, that we've created yep. over the years. Um, but I have never, no, I, have, I haven't actually written anything myself and I've never directed anything really. I, I, I have directed at Women's International Playwrights Conferences because then you put yourself up for whatever they need. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I, I sort of can direct, but it's not something I want to do. I'm much, I'm much um, happier as a performer. In a sense, I get all my directing um, happiness out of directing La Mama rather than plays.
I've been given some amazing awards, um, which always take me totally by surprise because I never think I am about, you know, I guess most people don't think they're about, or I guess some people do expect awards if you go for all of them. I was made, um, a, a, given a doctor of, honorary doctorate of laws, honoris causa, as they say, by the ANU. I think it was in about 1996, is yeah, that right? That's what I've got, yeah. yeah, and that was really for my my sustained my sustaining la mama. Yeah. For and so that was uh, that was really for for sustaining la mama and doing and working with la mama. Um, and I guess um, and, and then in I was given an AO. Is that is that have you got that? I do that? have that. Yes. Yes. I was made an officer of the Order of Australia, yeah. and and I'm very proud of that. And too, and particularly because that was particularly given to me for work with the Indigenous community. Yeah. That was it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, in running La Mama, um, I guess one's priority, one's. The, the big vision maintains the same. You want it to be open, diverse, um, exciting, um, include marginalised communities, all of those sort of, those things which were part of Betty's vision. But then in various decades, I've taken on um, sort of more specific uh, um, ideals because one of the things that I really became very aware of um, in the early 80s was the fact that so few women writers' work was being produced at La Mama. Um, and I decided to attempt to alter that balance. Um, and it seemed to me one of the best ways of altering that balance was to specifically... Uh, nurture female directors, young women directors who were coming out of um, drama schools or working around the traps and um, because I assumed that I just felt that women directors would be would at least give women writers a, you know a very good so solid hearing. Um, I never actually prescribed that those that those women p select or direct plays by women. Yep. They certainly could choose men whose work they wanted to. But it really did help to alter the balance. So through the 80s, we went from in the from in the in the 70s there being just one or two women writers work at La Mama, mm. to by the end of the 80s a, almost a 50-50 balance. Yeah. Um, and of course, a lot of very flourishing female directors. It's still a battle for women. The yeah. directing side of things. Yeah. Um, What's the balance like now of the shows that La Mama? Puts uh, on? The, the balance at La Mama is, is a, a good fifty-fifty. It, it sometimes more women, sometimes more men. You know, it's yeah. just when you look at it, there is there. Yeah. It's um, the uh, of course on the administrative side, it's it's always been a majority of women, yeah. um, and that's you know. It's interesting. Part of that, I honestly think, is probably because of the level of pay. The, there are a lot of women involved in administration in the um, fringe arts, 
in the small to medium sector. But because it's, you have to be quite prepared to work for a very modest income. And I think women possibly find it easier to work for a modest income than, than men. I think sometimes that maybe men are a more um, career trajectory, you know, uh, set on a career trajectory, I don't know. That's, I don't think that's so much to do, so with today's generation. But um, yeah. Uh, and in the 90s, the cause that I decided was really had to be addressed. In, in, in the early 90s, I was on the Australia Council um, uh, Drama Committee for three years, which was a wonderful learning experience, like doing a PhD, really. Um, and what I discovered was that there was a lot happening in, in Indigenous theatre in places other than Victoria. You know, Western Australia had Yirri and at that point, um, and, and the Queensland, Coimbatore, which is now gone, but um, Aora in uh, in New South Wales. Now, Ilbidgeri Theatre Company had had tried to get it go itself going and had kind of faded away, um, and so it just seemed to me so important to to concentrate on. Uh, working with the Indigenous community to get something going. And so I began working with Richard Franklin um, uh, and Glenn Shea and other people um, one, to bring Richard's uh, work to theatrical life because he'd made a number of films that he wanted to um, bring into theatre. Um, and, and in that process, Sue Natras really helped because um, she selected two of his works to be part of the Melbourne International Festival at La Mama at the courthouse. Um, but also um, with them to try and um, kickstart uh, and sustain Ilbidgeri Theatre Company. And um, one of the things we did with that was we entered into a three-year agreement with them for La Mama to help sustain Ilbidgeri and uh, I appointed when they they ran their first um, uh, playwrights conference festival. Um, La Mama provided two very experienced dramaturgs to work with the writers, um, and so there was this sort of um, dedication on my part to to try and and, and see a vibrant Indigenous theatre scene in Victoria. And it's just wonderful that, you know, I then I also then entered into a formal mentoring relationship with Andrea James, who was a young Indigenous woman working with Melbourne Workers Theatre. Uh, and also I did a little bit of mentoring initially with Rachel Mazza, who is now... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I mean, wonderful Rachel. Yeah. But just basically, um, uh, just working through strategic business plans and that sort of thing with with Rachel. So, that you know, the, the present situation with Ilbidgeri and the fact that we've done a, a, quite a bit of work with Ilbidgeri is, is, you know, it's so exciting. It's wonderful. It's, 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 it's Ilbidgeri is thriving. Yeah, so that's, so, um, yeah, yesterday we had a, we, we had a conference run by, by Caitlin, a little conference at Footscray Community Arts Centre, just our staff, trying to look past the fire, past the rebuild, into the future, because the rebuild, of course, preoccupies us at the moment. Trying to talk about where to now, you know. Of course, we'll go on doing all of those things, but, you know, is there a particular area that our 
um, passion that, that our we, our commitment should be. And we, I think, certainly my feeling is that that once we get over this rebuild, there are two areas we need to focus on. Uh, there are areas where we've worked before, but our work has stopped for various reasons. One is working with refugees, and we worked with refugees for 20 years. And that's sort of ground to a halt because the organisation we worked with, AMES, wonderful, was defunded. The other one is for about, again, about 20 years, we worked with Platform Youth. Platform Youth was this wonderful youth company uh, for people um, uh, sort of between the ages of like, you know, well, in their 20s, who have not been tertiary educated. Yeah. So they're not, they don't have NIDA behind them. They don't have the VCA behind them. They don't have WAPA behind them. Yeah. Um, wonderful group, a very disparate, diverse, ethnically diverse um, um, people with various disabilities. It's been a wonderful company. And it was defunded with those brandis cuts. Okay. And after 20 years, ceased existing. And I think my burning passion is to get those two, our work with those two areas going again. Um, with, with sort of disenfranchised youth and um, disenfranchised refugees. Um, so that's where I think probably our energies will lie, but we have to, we've got to rebuild and actually have a place for it to all happen. Yes. Um, and that won't, we, we're not going to be rebuilt until probably about June 2020. It's a, a, sort of a slowish process.